I'd ask you to turn with me in your Bibles, hopefully you have one, to the book of Exodus, as we are in our series entitled Set in Stone, looking at the Ten Commandments. And we've been making our way uh, this entire summer through the commandments, one by one, and uh, gave you a little way to remember that, for those that have been here, this is what? One God, one finger pointing to heaven. You can teach this to your kids. Number two, two words. Second commandment, no idols. Three, third commandment, three words. Honor God's name. Third commandment, three words. Fourth commandment, four words. Remember God's holy day. Fifth commandment, five words. Honor your father and mother. We talked about this one, the sixth commandment, pointing it out. Thou shalt not murder. Now, this is the one we come to today. This one calls, this is mommy and daddy. No one comes between mommy and daddy. Okay? This is how we taught our children to memorize this. this is thou shalt not commit adultery. And talking about the topic of adultery, as I was just meditating upon this passage uh, today, I couldn't help but think of one of the most interesting and introspective novels that talks about adultery. And that would be The Scarlet Letter. Anyone, if you ever went through high school English, you've heard the, the title. I lived in New England for a little while, and I got to go to where Nathaniel Hawthorne lived, actually, the House of Seven Gables. You ever heard that place? There's a place in it. It has his home. It's right on the ocean uh, in Salem Haba. That's how they say it in New England, Haba. And uh, we got to just see the different works of literature and get his mindset and, and, and immerse in the Puritan work ethic and values that Puritans had. Now, Puritans gave us a great and godly heritage. A lot of our, our work ethic comes from them. A lot of our, our just American ethos and who we are come from them. But there's also some bad aspects to it. And we can look at them and we can see a lot of legalism uh, that was involved. And we don't see a lot of forgiveness and mercy and grace. And we all know that we need mercy, forgiveness, and grace. Do we not? We all do. Each one of us. And if you're familiar with the story, it's about a woman named Hester Prynne. She's the, the, uh, the main character in the story. And uh, she is sent over to the New World by her husband, who remains in England, to do some business. And she comes over there, and, and he, her husband is delayed in coming for a long period of time. And what happens is, is she becomes friendly with the town minister, seeking comfort in him. And then uh, the relationship gradually develops, and it becomes sexual. And then there's a baby that results, and there was no means of way of hiding it, especially in, in Puritan New England. And she uh, has this baby, and then the townspeople come to her and they say, you are pregnant by adultery. Who is the father? You must confess. And she refuses to divulge who the, the father is. And so the townspeople imprison her, put her in jail, then they put her on trial. And then they, they convict her of adultery, and then what they do is they force her to wear a scarlet letter for the rest of her life. And she has this child that she carries with her, Pearl, who is just this exemplification of, of what is good. And even that, though evil may have uh, been at fault, I mean, at the beginning of it, good can still come out of that. And she, she has this child with her. And the, and the story even chronicles the minister who is just tortured by the fact that she is being published punic, uh, publicly, but he in personal, he's in personal inner turmoil to the point where he ends up burning upon his chest the A. He was so driven by guilt and shame because he refused to admit it publicly what he had done. 
Now, the story is a, a story of sin and redemption. It talks about legalism and grace and forgiveness. There's many aspect, aspects of it involved. And today, we're going to look and see that adultery is not just the physical act of cheating on one's spouse. It's a spiritual act as well. And that many of us, if we are honest, I mean, some of us within here today, if we were to follow the law of the Puritans, I know that there would be many within our midst today that would have to wear that scarlet A. There are others, if we are honest with ourselves, we would have to be guilty by thought and our inner attitudes. And we, too, would have to wear it. Just because, as Jesus, as we are going to see, adultery isn't just a physical act, but it's a hard condition. So I'd ask you to turn with me in your Bibles, if you have one, to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. As we look at this commandment, and as you're turning to Exodus, chapter 20, I want you to also mark Matthew, chapter 5. We're going to have two scripture readings today as we delve within this, because Jesus brings clarification on this passage and some very interesting insights that it, it is imperative that we know. It is our uh, tradition here at Village Bible Church Grace Campus to stand for the uh, honor of reading God's Word. So I'd ask you to stand with me. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Our text in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, God, by the Holy Spirit, uh, writes, and Moses dic- writes down, you shall not commit adultery. And then flip over to the book of Matthew, which is in the New Testament. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, uh, that's okay. It's just turned, it's uh, in the latter part of your Bible. We get to Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. And then I wanted to read all the way through verse 30. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Let's pray. Our glorious Father, Lord, if we are honest with ourselves, we each, in some way, shape, or form, would be bearing a scarlet A. Lord, help us to see how to apply this commandment that we may not wear it. Or if we have been wearers or bearers of that letter, may we see the grace and forgiveness that is found through you and that you, in one of the most glorious glorious truths in all of Scripture, became sin for us. You became to bear that letter yourself by your blood and that you took our sins upon yourself and that you gave us your righteousness, enabling us to be free and cleansed, sanctified, set apart, all because of your wondrous grace and mercy and how it was given to us through your death on the cross. Be with us today. Help unplug our ears. Help us see not only with our eyes, but with our hearts to apply this truth to our lives so that your name might receive glory in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So let's delve right in. Because, you know, it's interesting, as we look with that Nathaniel Hawthorne story, it's not a new story. I mean, it goes back to the 1600s, but we know that the, the adultery goes back a lot further than that, does it not? I mean, there are some, some examples of individuals within Scripture that were adulterers. 
The first one I think of is King David. King David, the man after God's own heart, was guilty of adultery. And if we would, I mean, if you read it in the terms of today, it would be scandalous. It would almost be like it was torn from today's headlines. Something you'd see on CNN or any other news agency. You have politician seeks to, has a, an affair with one of his secret service agents' wives. And then he tries to cover it up. It's very scandalous. And he even goes so far as to, to uh, order his execution. And yet we see that there was a pregnancy that resulted from that. I mean, it, it goes back to the very beginning. I mean, perhaps the greatest story of adultery is not even King David, but it's the woman caught in the act of adultery in John chapter 8. What a great story that is. Remember, Jesus is, is with his disciples when a crowd comes up with a woman who is caught in the very act of adultery. I mean, and they, they bring her before Jesus, and they say, the law says that we're to stone such a woman. What do you say? And the law did prescribe that, actually. The book of Leviticus and the book of Deuteronomy both say that if anyone were to engage in unlawful sexual relations in that way, that they would be taken out and stoned by the entire camp. I mean, it's, it's pretty severe. And then Jesus does something fascinating. He, bend down, he's bend down, he bends down and he starts writing in the sand. Now, it's interesting. There have been sermons that have pontificated what he wrote in the sand. I mean, scholars have imagined and just dreamed, what was it? Some actually believe that it was actually the law that she was breaking or had broken. And the people, though, really didn't care about the woman. Because they remember, the law actually says that it's not the woman that's just to be stoned. Who is it? It takes two to tango. It was to be the man and the woman. And the man's nowhere, nowhere. They just bring the woman. So there, you see that they're just trying to catch Jesus to see what he does. Will he? Because they knew he was full of mercy, grace, and compassion, and that if he said, don't do this, he would be violating the very law of God. That's what the Old Testament said. So Jesus, in one of the most profound moments, I mean, it's almost like hearing a great symphony, and it comes to the apex with Jesus, this, the divine crescendo, when, when you feel those tingles within you, and you just wait and wait upon his words, what is he going to say? And he says one of the most profound things in all of Scripture. He, vi- he actually validates the command. And he says, let he who has no sin cast the first stone. I mean, he says it right then and there. And they're saying, oh, he, wait, what? And then it says one by one, they began to lay down their stones, the oldest first to the youngest. And it's interesting that Jesus does something in between that. After he even says, let he who has no sin be the one that casts the first stone, he, he crouches down and he writes in the sand again. Some think that he was writing grace and mercy over the law that was broken. And then the one by one, those men leave, dropping their stones because they know in their heart of hearts that they too are guilty of it. They just had never been caught in the act. And then he says to her, woman, is there no one left to condemn you? And I can imagine her just grabbing her garment saying, no, sir, then neither do I. What a profound truth. I mean, that's one of the greatest examples of it. And if we were to really see how to apply this commandment and see God's grace and mercy through this, we have to go back even further than the book of Exodus on Mount Sinai. We have to go back to the very beginning and understand what is marriage? What is marriage? 
So as you follow along with your notes, that's what I want us to see. First of all, what we need to do is examine the marriage covenant. Let's bring that up there for me, would you, Carl? Examining the marriage covenant. We need to see what this covenant is. Why did God create it? And why is marriage so serious? It was, it's so different back then than it is today. Today, you can go to the justice of the peace, walk in, uh, get your marriage license, boom, boom, you're out. That's not how it was within the Old Testament. It was a very long process. What it did is it began with a betrothal. Most often, it was between uh, the two fathers. They would negotiate a betrothal. The, the couples usually didn't have much of a say in that. Now, can you imagine if we tried to do that today? Ooh. And we think, that's crazy. But the divorce rates were very low. Our divorce rate is pretty high in the United States of America. They, I think they had something there. So the, the fathers would negotiate this betrothal period, which was greater than an engagement, but less than a marriage. Now, there, were, there weren't any sexual relations in that time. Matter of fact, if there were, they could both be stoned. It wasn't allowed until the consummation. And it took, sometimes a lot, period of uh, time lasted between six months and a year, and the bride would be preparing herself. And the friend of the bridegroom would be there uh, helping her along. The, the groom wouldn't even see her until the wedding day. And so this friend of the bridegroom, which John the Baptist calls himself, that Jesus is the, the groom and he's the friend of the bridegroom preparing the way for Jesus to come. And this woman would be prepared until the actual wedding day. And it would be interesting here, when the wedding day finally arrived, the bridegroom would dress himself in festive garments, wearing a crown of gold or silver or flowers. He would proceed with his friend and other attendants from an unknown place at an unknown time to the bride's father's house. Now the virgins of Israel would be outside waiting along the way in the evening with their oil lamps lit until the loud warning cry, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. And then they would meet him and then proceed with him to the entrance of the bride's father's house. Now, meanwhile, the bride would have been bathed, purified, perfumed, richly clothed, and adorned with many jewels, and would receive the blessing from her family and friends. When the bridegroom finally showed up at the entrance of the house, there would again be a loud cry, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. The procession would begin then from the bride's father's house to the house of the bridegroom. It began with great celebration. And everyone would come together. You would have the, the bridegroom, the bride, the friend, the virgins, musicians, and many other friends. And relatives would walk and dance and cast flowers and sing songs with every demonstration of joy and gladness. gladness. The bride was crowned and carried by the crowd on a piece of furniture through the streets to the bridegroom's house. And the ceremony itself was, uh, uh, was called the, the chuppah, which means canopy. Now, have you ever been to a Jewish service? They actually have that under a little tent. And I had a friend of mine who uh, married a Messianic Jew. And it's so different than our customary marriage celebrations in that uh, in our celebrations, primarily, the groom comes in. You barely see anything with a groom. I mean, he's just there in a suit and tie. That's it. I mean, he talks, and he's just standing there. That's it. I mean, the bride comes in, and everybody stands, and oh, and, oh look at that dress. And she's so beautiful. And she's been spent years planning this and the guy i mean he just got his rental at genghis you know that's it uh, that's all he got and it's all about the bride now it, but in the jewish culture it was different yes the the bride was adorned and she'd have a veil from her head down to her feet but it was more about the groom and uh, i was participating in this messianic wedding and it's kind of funny it was in montana not a lot of messianic jews in montana um, but i had a shofar uh, which is a ram's horn 
and it was my job uh, the, to blow for the, like, announcing the groom his coming. So it's interesting that the, the bride came in, and she walked under the tent, and then she walked around her parents seven times, signifying that her allegiance had been to her parents. And then the father of the bride would call to the rear of the sanctuary. He would call out to the groom and says, you have done righteously. Come and receive your bride. And then I was up. I was to go, you know, that kind of thing. And this is what happened. And then the groom comes out laughing. <laughs> he comes out laughing. But it ended up that he walks to the front of the, the sanctuary, and then the bride walks seven times around him, showing that her allegiance now is around her husband. And so it's, it's a remnant, a carryover of what we see within ancient Judaism. Now, the ceremony was under this tent, which means canopy, and the bride and bridegroom would go under the canopy, canopy for all to see. They would then proceed to a room where she would remove her veil, and that it would physically consummate their union uh, and their marriage covenant with God. And after, they would place the bloodstained garment out of the window of the room for all to see that she had been a virgin. If that couldn't be supplied, the woman could be uh, drawn up and it would be considered to be a death sentence. She could be stoned if there wasn't proof of that. Yeah, this is different. This is a way different mindset of looking at um, marriage. And then the doors were shut and the feast began with great dancing and celebration lasting seven days at the bridegroom's house. That's a long marriage party. Seven days. All guests were given special garments, clothings of festivity. The bridegroom and bride were treated as king and queen, and they also wore garments of celebration and did no work. And they would all watch the festivities, drink wine, and even join in the dancing. And the ruler of the feast was responsible for all preparations and benedictions. And then it was, it was considered, marriage was considered, especially within ancient Judaism, the foundation of human society. Now, it's interesting. Marriage isn't a creation of man. It's a creation of God. And you know that marriage begins, it predates the fall. It is the very fabric and foundation. It, it precedes government. It precedes economics. It precedes everything else. It is the very foundation of society. Now, we can see through Scripture as we look at marriage and see even in Genesis that the marriage covenant, first of all, is singular. It's singular. Write that down. It's singular. It's, and what do I mean by that? You're like, well, it's a couple. What I mean is a single couple. One man and one woman. That's how God has ordained it to be. Not two men, not two women, not three men, one woman, not uh, three women and one man. It is one man, one woman, and it was to be for life. It was to be for life. Now, we can see in Scripture that polygamy was permitted, but it wasn't blessed. As a matter of fact, it seems just that God allowed it to occur for a period of time, but it actually disappears after the time of the exile. We don't even see it appear within ancient Israel. But it is true that it was practiced within the Old Testament. But again, I think God allowed it. He permitted it, but it wasn't blessed. Now we also see that as we go back to creation, we can see that the two came together and became one flesh. One flesh. Which means that this union was not only physical, but it was spiritual. That's that little letter B there. It's spiritual. It is a spiritual reunion, a union where the two become one flesh. And there's a mystery that occurs there that we're going to look at in more, uh, a, a more of a, a deeper uh, glance here in just a second. And we see that, it, that God also sanctified marriage, which means he set it apart. 
He set it apart. It is sanctified. And how did God sanctify marriage? Well, first of all, he sanctified marriage by rooting it in creation, that it's part of the very fabric of creation. Remember, God creates everything in six days, and everything is good, right? The animals, the plants, everything, the beasts of the field, everything is great, good. What's the first thing that's not good? Being alone. Being alone. It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. That God says, no, it's not good for man to be alone. See, God gave marriage to man, and he established the marriage covenant and sanctified it, giving it for companionship. It's for companionship. Now, as E.V. Hill, who's a great African-American preacher, one of my favorite preachers, he used to joke and say, it's hard to live with them, brethren, but never alone. (laughs) Never alone. You know, it's fascinating to me that when you're kids, boys and girls don't want to be together very much, do they? It's girls play with girls, boy plays with boys. And then there's this shift in like junior high, high school. And then boys and girls suddenly want to be together. Then they get married and then they go back away. (laughs) That's why when you go to a party, the men go talk around the barbecue, you're around the grill, and the girls are inside talking in a circle. (laughs) It's just different. Women are more communal than men. And man has made, I mean, God has made man and woman different, blessedly so. Is it not right? I think it's wonderful how God has made men and women different. It's how he's created it. Now, I know there's singles out there that you're, you don't want to be single, and you say, I, 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 want, uh, I don't want to be alone. I want that companionship. Well, trust in the Lord. Continue to wait. God's timing is not our timing. We have to make sure that we are waiting on God. So we see that it's sanctified because it's rooted in creation and it's been given for companionship. And God also sanctify marriage by having it, uh, us complement one another. Men and women complement one another. That's why my wife has very great taste in beauty and things like that. I mean, my wife uh, went to Pittsburgh this past week with my kids. I was supposed to have jury duty and I had some other work to do. So she went there and I, I surprised her because our anniversary was yesterday. Uh, 12 years, 12 years of marital bliss on my side. I can't say the same for her. Um, but uh, I tried to surprise her, and I painted a wall, and I painted all these, fixed these projects that needed to be done, that honey-do list. So when she came home, she was surprised. And I had everything nice, neat, and clean. And, and then she comes home, and it's late. And uh, I would had uh, a, a dinner at Chili's, and she came back, and she, um, she's looking at the room, and she's so thankful. And the next thing I know, she's carrying all this laundry downstairs. And I said, what is it? She goes, it smells like man in our room. <laughs> and the next thing I know, I see her coming out with these jeans that I'd worn to Chili's. She goes, they smell like Chili's. And she set them down. And then she comes out with all of the, the sheets and the, the comforter. I'm like, what's that? She's like, it smells like man in our room. That's just the difference between men and women, right? Right? I don't smell that bad. Okay? I don't. But it's just the difference between men and women. And we're to compliment one another. Right? That's why, I mean, that's why women have a great understanding of aesthetic and eating and like, even like a balanced diet. She's like, she asked me the question. She's like, well, what did you eat when you were gone? I'm like, there's nothing in the fridge. She's like, I told you there was stuff in the freezer. Did you eat any vegetables? I'm like, vegetables. No, I ate the pizza <laughs> and the chicken. She, did you eat any vegetables? Uh, I didn't know we had any. <laughs> you know, difference between men and women. The difference between men and women. We're to compliment one another. I like how someone said this about men and women. 
They say that marriage is like a deck of cards. You start off with two hearts and a diamond and end up with a club and a spade. <laughs> so true, is it not? We have to con- and we have to work at our marriages, do we not? I like how another man put it. To be happy with a man, you must understand him a lot and love him a little. To be happy with a woman, you must love her a lot and not try to understand her at all. <laughs> I mean, see, we are to complement one another. God has purposed that for marriage. No, but what else has he purposed it for? Well, he's also purposed it for children. Purposed it for children. That's the next point there in your notes. As he allows, as he allows. And we know that some couples, God has, for whatever reason, not allowed that to occur. Some he's given the gift of singleness, and for others... Maybe they could not have children of their own. Maybe it's to adopt. It could be a variety of different reasons. We can't go into all of them now. But that God has purposed for children. Now, it's interesting. I want to throw this scripture up here for you. Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2. You want to throw that up for me there, Carl? 2, 13 through 16. This is God speaking to the nation of Israel. And he's, he says here, very clearly, And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and wife by covenant. It's not a contract. It's a covenant, which means it's very, very serious. But continue on. Here's the next part of it. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? Something divine occurs in the union between a man and a woman. And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So God creates that. He creates the the family unit to be the foundation of society. And he asks the parents and calls the parents to equip their children with godliness. To to tell them and teach them. We see that in Deuteronomy 6. We see that in so many other passages in Scripture that God has called the parents to do that. You know it's not the church's job to disciple your kids? It's yours. And it doesn't talk a lot in Scripture about evangelizing children. Do you know that? I mean, one Scripture that I can think of when Jesus says, forbid not the children to come to me. But the rest of it, and you see it over and over again, it is an instruction to the parents to reach their children. And if we don't reach a parent, then we have a much harder time reaching the children. It's like looking at a, uh, it's like looking at a van. And you have the driver and you have all the passengers. Talking to the child is like trying to give them directions on where to go. And they're in the back seat. If you don't get the driver, you're not going to get the kids. I mean, you can get the kid, but you're not going to get the driver. And even then, it's, it's that parent's going to continue to drive. And I, I have been in, and, and, and served in youth ministry. Uh, I, I was in the city of Chicago. I worked with inner city kids. And I can count on one hand. And I had hundreds of kids go through the ministry. And that... If we didn't get the parent, and it broke my heart, because when I first started, I thought we could just get the kid. We didn't need to get the parent. And I realized after years of futility that if we didn't get them, it, it, it was almost futile. I mean, God worked in spite of it. But we have to be disciplers of our children. It's our job. God has purposed it for children. It's interesting. Tony Evans, I like what he said about the, the, the importance of reaching children. Foundational to strong families are strong marriages. Put it another way, failed marriages cannot produce the endure, unified, enduring families needed to support our troubled society because the family is being attacked all around us. 
When children grow up in loveless homes, they don't learn the crucial lessons necessary to develop good self-images now and to build strong marriages for themselves later. When children see their fathers coercing submission from their mothers through fear and intimidation, they learn a warped definition of manhood and womanhood, which often results in poor behavior and communication. When a father abandons his family, a son learns that this is an option for him in the future, and a daughter learns to fear a familiar desertion by the man she marries. These and far too many other situations like them are especially devastating in urban settings where, coupled with many other problems, there is a massive destruction of the family. In urban America, if urban America is going to rebuild its communities morally, socially, and spiritually, it is going to have to begin by rebuilding families. To do that, marriages must function as God intended. That is particularly important for Christian marriages because the church is the most important force for community change. If the church, this is Evans continuing to talk, is to be properly equipped to bring about that change, it needs to focus on building strong families. Christian marriages must be solid so that the family unit and thereby the church can do its job effectively. And I can put a wholehearted amen. After being in urban youth ministry and serving in youth ministry for eight years and having tons of children into our home, I can see that if, without reaching the parent, it's really hard to reach the children. I remember one evening when I was doing youth ministry, we would have the, the teenagers over to our home late at night sometimes till 12.30, this was on a Friday night, and they would come from all over the city, some taking a bus by two hours, taking two hours to get to the youth ministry. We had kids mugged on the way to youth ministry. And then after youth ministry was over in the gymnasium where we met, they would come to our home because we wanted to show them what a home was like, a functional home. And they would stay at our house until 11, 11.30 or even sometimes midnight. And we would drive them home. And it sometimes take two hours. And we wouldn't get home until 1.30 or 2 o'clock in the morning driving through some of the worst neighborhoods in Chicago. But I remember one night, particularly one night, we're sitting on the back porch. And I was talking about what it means to be a godly man and father. And I had 17 young men on my back porch. 17 of them. And only a handful of them even had a parent anywhere in their life. And though I would share it with them, they were still battling the example that they'd seen within their communities and in their lives. And, and I've seen the product of their lives over the last decade. And some of them, even though they warned, we told them about it, we taught it, we shared with them week after week the truths therein. Invited them into our lives. I mean, on Sundays, they would come to church with us. And then they would come over to our homes. And they would eat, they would bring all kinds of food, because we couldn't feed that many kids. They'd be bringing in Kentucky Fried Chicken and McDonald's, and they'd just sit at our tables, and, and then uh, they would talk and chat, and we'd have a class on Sunday evenings, and they would just wait around at my home until then. And, and that's hard to do. I remember at 2 o'clock, I'd, fi I'd finally tell all the teenagers, everybody be quiet, I'm taking a nap. And they would all get quiet, and the next thing I know, I'd take a nap, I'd wake up, and then they would be sleeping under the table, under the chairs, on top of coffee tables. I mean, and we'd have to step over them. <laughs> But we were investing our lives. But still, I learned an important lesson. No, the more time I taught with them, they, they lived in our home at times. We gave them housing. That we still needed to reach the parent. It's just so imperative. God has given that task to parents to reach their children. God has purposed it for godly offspring. Now, here's another thing about the marriage covenant. Did you know it's also symbolic? Symbolic. It's symbolic. I want to call up a scripture for you right now. 
Ephesians chapter 5, throw it up for me there, Carl, would you please? Uh, Symbolic. It symbolizes Christ's love for the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that he might be holy and without blemish. In the same same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. The next one. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ of the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. It's not a hookup culture. And the two shall become one flesh. The mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That this is a a spiritual union that is being done. And it's showing Christ's love for the church. That's what marriage symbolizes in its essence. It is a symbol of God's love for us. We have to understand that marriage is a very, very serious, serious issue. Now, let's let's delve into the commandment. Because I think we need to understand that it goes beyond the physical act to the spiritual act. We saw that in Matthew 5. But I want us right now to be clarifying what the commandment or the full intention of the commandment. Let's put that up there for me, would you, Carl? Clarifying the full intention of the commandment. We could see that adultery has two aspects to it. First of all, it's a physical act. It's a physical act whereby someone comes between mom and daddy culminates in an affair but we also see according to the words of jesus that it is also a spiritual act a spiritual act jesus says in matthew chapter 5 let's bring that up to the screen here you have heard it that it was said you shall not commit adultery but i say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart and this applies both to men and women but Statistics have shown that men have a harder time than women do with lust. It has been said statistically that 90% of men struggle with lust. The other 10% struggle with lying. Okay? That's been, you know, it's been said, but if, if, and with the proliferation of pornography that is available on our laptops and our desktops, now even on phones, it's caused a great deal of broken homes and confusion. So we see that it is a a physical act and it is a deeply spiritual act. Now now that we've established that it's both a physical act and a spiritual act, I want us to chart the course of adultery and where it leads. So let's look at number three here. Let's chart the course of adultery and where it leads. Where does it begin? Does it begin with the eyes? No, it doesn't. Mark chapter 7, verse 20, says that all of our sins come from what? Our heart. It comes from our heart. Because we have fallen flesh. We have desires. Our, 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 our fallen desires are not in line with the truth of God's word. So it begins in our heart. We have a disposition to sin. We have to fight that. And only that only comes through the redemption and the cross of Christ and His Holy Spirit helping us to put to dead, death the misdeeds of the flesh. So we see that it begins in the heart and then it goes to the mind. There's a reason that God says to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. What we think about 
changes a great deal about who we are. See, sometimes people say, oh, we don't need the mind. Oh, the Bible would disagree with you. Paul wrote in the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 1 through 2, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Mind. We're to take every thought captive in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. I like how Erwin Lutzer, pastor of Moody Church, says, frisk every thought. Frisk it. Throw it up against the car. <laughs> frisk it before you let it in. Frisk your thought. Because see, what happens is it starts in the heart, and then it goes to the mind. And then that starts going, I mean, and the eyes are working in conjunction with this. And we have to be very careful what we put before our eyes. I, the first pastor I ever worked with, Larry Powell, he was a senior pastor when I was a youth pastor. I, I really appreciated one thing that he had in his home. It was from the Psalms. And he put it over his TV. I will put before my eye no vile thing. Over his television. It was a great reminder. Because he knew that his heart and his mind would operate through the eyes. As one man has said, you can't help the first look but you can sure help the second. Or as the farmer put it, you can't stop the sparrow from going through the barn, but you can sure stop him from nesting there. And that nesting comes through the mind. The mind. So where to understand how the, car, the course of adultery works, that it begins in the heart, and we see it going through the eyes and the mind, working together, and then that leads to action. That leads to action. and leads to the body committing in the body. And we must not do that. As Paul wrote to the Ephesians in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, he says, let there not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Not even a hint. Not even playing around with it. As we've talked about before, it's like taking a little bit of poison and putting it in your drink. It's a little bit, but it can kill you. A little bit, but it can kill you. So we have to understand, make sure that we're not doing it, we're guarding our hearts, our minds, and our bodies. Now, let me say a word here. I want us to all realize that adultery comes with consequences. Realize that adultery comes with consequences. It always does. It is guaranteed to come with consequences. Guaranteed. I love what Proverbs says. God, by His Spirit, says, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes and not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. I prefer to say is an idiot. It's the Travis Fleming version. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. In other words, I mean, you're destroying your life. Everything about you, you're risking your, your family, your career, your calling, your testimony. You're risking everything on the line by doing that. There will be consequences. Because then if you even have adultery, you might, and you try to cover it up like David did, it resulted in murder. 
There's always a consequence to it. I mean, and, and there's, there's no shelf life on when that'll, that'll, that, that will be. You can hide it for years. Years. And it could come back, I mean, it could come back 50 years later. There is no shelf life on consequences. And if you don't see them in this life, and I guarantee you will feel an alienation from God, that's one consequence. But there are a lot more. I mean, your family turning your back on you, you could lose your job. You could, I mean, there's so many different things that could happen to you. There are always consequences. You will get burned. I mean, you even see there about a man who's jealous. It's the understanding that you, you committed adultery with his wife. He's coming after you. He's jealous for his wife, as he should be. I'm not saying that it's, it's commendable. I'm just saying it's the natural byproduct of it. So we have to understand that there are always consequences. Someone is going to find out. You won't have peace. You'll have the nagging knowledge that someone will find out. And you'll know that you are also condemned. Now, what's the answer to that? Say, I, I already feel that burden. Well, I'm going to give you the solution right now. There's only one person that can cleanse your sin. And that is Jesus. He's the only one that can offer you grace and forgiveness. As David said, even after he'd committed adultery with Bathsheba, yes, he'd sinned against Uriah and sinned against Bathsheba, but what does he say in the Psalms? Against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It was against God, ultimately. That was the, the bigger magnitude of it. So how do, you, how, do you, how do you extricate yourself? Well, it involves repenting. It means repenting of your sinful choices. Repenting of your sinful or our sinful choices. If you are guilty of adultery, here's what you do. First of all, surrender to Christ. Surrender to Christ. Quit running. Quit trying to cover it up. Surrender to Jesus. And then you must do that which you do not want to do. And that is confess your sins. Confess your sins. Now, there is no, no repentance without some measure of confession. Now, this isn't in your notes, but there are three that I think that you should think about confessing to. Number one, obviously, you confess to the Savior. That's not in your notes. You can write this down, though. Confess to the Savior. So number two, you've got to confess to your spouse. Your spouse that you've wronged. You say, well, it's going to hurt them. You should have thought of that sooner. The cow's out of the barn. Confess to your Savior also to your spouse. And then possibly, in certain instances, and that's not always this way, but it might have to happen before the saints. Especially for ministry leaders. To the saints. And there's going to be consequences. We see that in James chapter 5, verse 16. Because someone says, well, I only need to confess to God. James chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. If you want to be free from shame and guilt, you need to confess. You don't have to go into every sordid detail, but you must confess and be thorough. Healing cannot begin until you confess. You may also have to possibly confess to the saints, as I mentioned before. We see this in example in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 9, when the people came confessing their sins publicly. Right? Now, not every instance do I think that that needs to occur, but I think you need to seek counsel on that from one of the elders to see if your case merits that. 
Now, and then the, the third one here is submit to consequences. That's letter C then within your notes. Submit to the consequences. I'm reminded of the story of Gordon McDonald. Some of you have probably never heard of him, but Gordon McDonald was the it pastor in the 1980s. He uh, was a pastor of a megachurch, Grace Chapel in Lexington, Massachusetts. He was a man of God, but all men of God have their weaknesses. And like King David, he had an affair. In the 1980s, when flashy, money-loving TV evangelists were giving men of the Lord a bad name, McDonald's was one of the shining lights. He wrote best-selling books. He lectured across the country. He was a pastor of a very large megachurch in Mass, Massachusetts. And until he left to take over the 200 million World Vision Christian Relief Agency, he parlayed that post into the presidency of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, one of the nation's largest collegiate missionary organizations. And that's where it, he was in 1987, when anonymous letters arrived at the offices of religious publishers spelling out McDonald's adulterous affair. He quickly and publicly admitted his sin. McDonald became, as his lifelong friend Vernon Ground said, he did one of the most conspicuous casualty in the never-ending battle all of us carry on against evil within and without. Overnight, the pastor lost his job, his standing, and his reputation. I am a broken world person because a few years ago I betrayed the covenants of my marriage, the pastor has said. I know what it is like to live with the secret, he writes, and I know what it is like to live once again in the light. In time, McDonald would begin win back virtually everything from the love and respect of his wife and friends to his places on the bestseller list. He even wrote a book called Rebuilding Your Broken World, but it prescribes a course of reflection, confession, in the change that requires time, discipline, and most importantly, a separation from daily duties. And that separation, even from his family, lasted two years. He submitted to the consequences, though. See, every so many months, we hear of a new scandal within the, the press of some pastor or ministry leader succumbing to temptation some way. And then they, they, they sometimes go through the beginning of the restoration process, and then they think they don't need it. But he didn't do that. He said, I'm walking step by step to rebuild my life my family, and my ministry. Don't try to shirk the consequences. Submit to them. Healing will be much quicker and freer when you do. It's going to take time, but submitting to the consequences will go a long way with your spouse and others around you. And once you submit to the consequences, make sure you recommit to your spouse. You have to recommit to your spouse. Now, there are instances within Scripture of restored marriages. God can do and make a way where there is no other way. Where there's been healing and brokenness, God sometimes works His best. Because He can bring wholeness and fullness and restoration to that. He can bring hope. God is in the business of rebuilding lives. He's in the business of taking those that have been destitute by their sinful choices and bringing them back to wholeness and fullness and making them vessels of his grace and his glory for the whole world to see. That, so, that though sin might abounded, grace abounds all the more. And that's all because of what Jesus did on the cross. That it doesn't matter if you have done it or not. I mean, there are consequences to it. But he offers his grace and forgiveness to you. And he can restore you and make you whole. But that doesn't happen until you confess and agree with God about what you have done. And then after you recommit to your spouse, and that will take time, because trust takes a lifetime to gain and a, mom a moment to lose. But then you must take the steps necessary to cultivate your marriage. It means fleeing from sexual immorality. It means putting the parameters upon your marriage to protect it. 
It's easy for pride to convince us that we don't need to flee. And this instruction is for weaker Christians. We mislead ourselves into thinking that instead of fleeing, we can stroll away. No, looking back once in a while, because we are strong enough to resist or flirt with temptation. Admitting that we need to flee takes real Christian humility. And don't think you are above it. McDonald said, Satan can get me in a lot of ways. This is Gordon McDonald, the man that I was just talking about. He said, but he'll never get me in my personal relationships. They're too strong. And where did he get him? In the personal relationships. I've made sure to guard this in my own life. I don't like being alone with anyone of the opposite sex. I like to have someone else there, especially in car rides. And it's caused a great deal of inconvenience at times. And frustration. I've had people say, are you really doing that? Yes, because I'm trying to be to guard myself. One time that I remembered that I was riding in a car with a woman, and she was from our church in Massachusetts. And we were working outside. I was working with her husband and his wife. And Melissa was there. And uh, this guy, his name was Alex. He says, can you run to Home Depot and get this part? I need to put this, this canopy up. And I said, sure. And I said, what's it look like? And he goes, well, I'm going to send my wife with you to go with you. And I, I froze. I didn't know what to say at that moment in time. And she got in the car, and the entire time I was like this while I was driving. And I kept talking about, my marriage is great. I love my wife. You love your husband? Great. I was paranoid about it. I kept talking about, we, you know, I love her. I went, you know how I met? Oh, you know. And I was so scared. I didn't know what to say. I didn't stick up at that period of time because it just happened in a moment. But I, I, I realized I was on guard, and I'm paranoid. And I am still paranoid. And I always will be, Lord willing, paranoid. I've got to fight it, just like we all do. We have to guard ourselves from that. So let me, let me put this really practical for you. When do you need to flee? This isn't in your notes, but this is when you need to flee. When you find yourself thinking about a friend, coworker, ministry partner, counselee, and how much you're enjoying being with this person, flee. You might have to cut off that relationship. When you look forward to spending more time with this person and you make sure you look especially nice if you know you might see your friend that day, flee. If you begin to fantasize about being with this person or knowingly start uh, touching your friend or uh, in, in innocent ways, flee. I mean, even when I was in youth ministry, we had to do, we, we, could, we couldn't do full hugs, we had to do side hugs. Hey, hey. <laughs> nice to see you. People were like, what is all wrong with you? Nothing, just showing love, just showing love. That's it, you know? Because people can misconstrue things like that. When you become more secretive about your interaction with your friend, because people like your spouse might misunderstand your friendship, flee. You're in danger territory. If you receive cards, emails, or presents from this person that you would not your spouse to see, flee. Flee. When you find yourself comparing your spouse in an unfavorable way to your friend, flee. And if you start confiding in your friend about your marital problems, flee. You shouldn't be doing that. Not at all. I mean, because affairs are prevalent within our society. I know one pastor in New Jersey that told his entire church to get off Facebook. Why? Because people were connecting with their old girlfriends and boyfriends and led to adultery. We have to guard ourselves. And then, and, and, and if you, again, have been, you have not done, or you have been guilty of adultery, whether it's been physically or spiritually, confess it and take the steps necessary to cultivate your marriage marriage takes work it takes work like we've been married 12 years and i feel like it's gone by like that and we still have to work at it the daily stresses of life just pull at us every which way i mean we haven't really been married that long when i look at my grandparents we're married 73 years 
They had to cultivate that marriage relationship. We have to work at it, continually get to know one another, talk, set aside that time to communicate. And sometimes that might mean counseling. You might need counseling, marital counseling. There's nothing wrong with that. It means that you're trying to make your marriage stronger and better, but don't ever think your marriage is too strong. You must always continue to be growing it. And if you are a single, then, then you need to make sure that you put the steps in place to guard yourselves, especially against those who are married, married coworkers, friends. Uh, but you also must be seeking God first before anything else. So we must make sure that we are laying our hearts before the Lord, asking Him to guide us, guard us, protect us, and use us, and apply the seventh commandment. And then ask, continually confess our sins, be open before the Lord, and let Him transform us and use us for His glory. Let's close our, our message time with prayer, and we prepare our hearts for communion as Jonathan comes and leads us in communion. Our Father and our God, we are so grateful that you... You have called us to yourself, that you have given us the wonderful institution of marriage, that man and woman and all of their, their diversity can come together in unity in a way that mirrors your love for your church. Lord, we are so grateful that you saw that it was not good for us to be alone. We also thank you for the gift of children. Lord, help us to love our children and to love the children of those around us who, who have parents that care not for you. And Lord, let us love their families, the mother, the father. Help us to be a loving example to those around us of what a godly marriage or being satisfied as a single and what that entails. Lord, let our delight continually be in you. And if there has been adultery within a marriage, Lord, I pray that your grace might be upon it. I pray that you might touch that life and that marriage and you might make it whole again. Lord, we know that you're in the business of rebuilding lives that your grace is sufficient, that you died, and Lord, you bore that scarlet letter that each one of us have borne within our hearts. Remove it from us through the blood of your Son, our Lord Jesus, who took it upon himself, becoming the very sin that we committed, so that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. And Lord, for those that are still wrestling with their conscience, I pray that you might enable them by your Spirit to have the courageousness to confess it and turn from it, that they might seek restoration and wholeness in and through you. So glorify yourself in our lives and in our church. In Jesus' name, amen.